This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Business Movers. In the newest edition of Business Movers podcast, they look at the rise of Uber to track the origin story of the now infamous Rideshare app. You can listen to the new season on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Also, thanks to Upstart. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I just am so excited because the Welcome Soul Retreat is just a few days away. If you haven't gotten your tickets, there's still some spots left. You can join us on April 11th, this Sunday from 10 to 6 Eastern Standard Time. We're going to be hanging out together, doing some beautiful, beautiful work, manifesting and calling in your next level, stepping into the vibration that is going to help you attract and allow in your divine assignment. We're going to be doing meditation, breath work, visualizing. We're going to have a class on success mapping with Susie Moore. Rabbi David Aaron will be with us talking about consciousness and Kabbalah. Grab your spot, go to welcomesoul.com. And I can't wait to spend the day with you on Sunday, really doing some powerful work to have the life that we were meant to have. I'm so thrilled for today's episode because I had the honor of talking with the phenomenal Ray Dalio. He's an investor, philanthropist, and number one New York Times bestselling author, and the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds with over 1,500 employees, and he started it in his two-bedroom apartment in New York. Ray is the author of the bestselling book, Principles, Life and Work, which is about the unconventional principles that he's developed, refined, and used over the past 40 years to create unique results in both life and business. It's packed with so many valuable gems, so definitely you want to read that if you haven't already. We also are going to talk about his up coming book called The Changing World Order, which examines the world's most turbulent economic and political periods and how we can distill lessons from those times to prepare for what's ahead. You can pre-order your copy now. So we're going to have a link to that in the show notes as well. Plus, we're going to have a link so you can stay updated on the release of an awesome self-assessment tool that Ray created. And it gives you an extremely detailed breakdown of who you are and your strengths and how you can use your results to work more effectively with others. I had a lot of fun getting my results. And after talking to Ray, I said, I got to have my husband take this too. So I definitely recommend that you all try it out once it's available. Ray is truly one of the most generous and wise people I've ever had on the show. But what I love about him is how genuine and how humble he is. It's so rare for someone to be this accomplished. And at the same time, there's just no ego about him. I think he's the type of person that we all aspire to be. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only Ray Dalio. Ray, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, Happy to be here and also uh, get to communicate with your audience. Well, we're all the better for it. And I know how very, very, very busy you are doing such good work in the world. So it's a big deal that you took this time. I want to start at the beginning a little bit because it's an unbelievable journey. I don't know if everybody knows that you made your first investment when you were 12 and then you started you started this incredible business in your apartment in New York City. Can you tell us a little bit about that beginning? Well, you know, I was a kid. Um, my dad was a jazz musician. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I, at 12, caddied, uh, earned $6 a bag. The stock market uh, was hot at the time. First stock I bought was... Uh, the only reason I bought it was it was the only company I heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. 
<laughs> and I figured I could buy more shares because it was cheaper. That way, if it went up, I'd make more money. That was my whole criteria. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it was a company that was about to be go bankrupt, but some other company acquired it. I tripled my money and I said, I like this and uh, that this game is easy. I learned it's not easy, but I got hooked on the markets when everybody was hooked on the markets. So that's what I started. And then um, I played that game, you know, probably like a lot of people on Robin Hood and so on. I played that game through high school, you know, and into college. Then I got out of college. I clerked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the summer Big things were always happening. I got an MBA, then started on Wall Street trading commodities because I liked commodities. And then they hired me as director of commodities at this brokerage house right out of school. And that was the year of the oil shock. And the commodity markets went up and the stock markets went down. And anyway, a long story short, that was in 73. In 1975, I started my company. Um, I said a company. I didn't even think of it as a company. I, I went on my own. I had a two-bedroom apartment. A guy I went to school with uh, was in the first the one bedroom. He moved out. And with a guy I played rugby with and somebody else who was kind of assistant, institutional clients at my former job would pay for advice and so I started Bridgewater then, and then the dream began. And then I had a big mistake in the markets, a big crash. This was in 1981 and two. 1980, I calculated that a big economic crisis was going to come, very controversial point of view. And I was expecting an economic collapse. I couldn't have been more wrong. That was the exact bottom in the stock market. I lost money for me. I lost money for the clients. I lost the clients. I had to let everybody go. I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad because to help to pay for my family bills. Very, very painful. And it was one of the best things that ever happened in my life because it gave me the fear of being wrong. It gave me the humility that I needed, the open-mindedness to then be successful. It changed everything. Uh, long story short, I knew that I needed that fear of being wrong, but not wanting to give up the upside meant that I would behave differently. Like I'd have the smartest people who disagreed with me. I wanted to know what they thought and stress test my ideas. And I knew how to, I learned how to diversify in a way that wouldn't reduce my upside, but would reduce my downside. And that was then the beginning of this also tremendous journey of bringing in people, you know, to build an organization that's an institution. It's the largest edge fund in the world, and it has uh, 1,500 people or so and manages uh, about $150 billion and a fabulous group. And so, it developed a culture. And one sentence, the culture is an idea meritocracy. By that, I mean the best idea wins out regardless of wherever it comes from. So an idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships. By meaningful work, I mean 
you're on a mission to do something great, to make it fabulous. And then you have these meaningful relationships who are you care about each other's lives and you're in, in it together. So an idea meritocracy with the goals being meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. We did that and that has made us successful. We have this culture in which it's culture's destiny. So when you have that culture, how do you operate where everybody is extremely capable and yet and then bound together on that mission? And so that was our magic. And I was have been able to bring that along. And I'm so glad to be able to transition it. Started off 46 years ago and it then got transitioned so that it goes on beyond me. And I watch the beauty of these wonderful people performing excellently in that culture. So that's kind of my long-winded explanation of uh, that dimension of my journey. So I'm 71 years old now. And um, along the way, I learned principled thinking. I should explain what I mean by that. I learned this way of reflecting, writing out down principles, way to deal with things, debating those with others and setting on those principles. And that way of operating is where I want to pass it along. And so, because it's been such a blessing for me and for others, and anybody can be successful doing this. And I just wanted to pass it along because I'm at 71 and that's what I want to do. I mean, it's literally like I'm trying to put words to what it feels like to receive not just the story, but you personally telling this story. And it's like watching Van Gogh paint Starry, Starry Night. It's absolutely amazing. And it's not just amazing the vastness and how many lives are involved and the wealth that's created and the ideas and the way that you've framed things and understood things and what you've pulled out of things. It's also just you. But I'm a very ordinary person who uh, learned a way of being that anybody can learn. It's how to think beyond yourself with freedom and, and then other things. So I am anything but unique. You know, I lived in this wonderful country and then I found an approach that helped me. Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, the door to the mystical, it's right here. It's a breath away. It's a meditation away. It's a thought away. And that is right. It's like we've been taught in school some interesting things that possibly keep us from actually seeing how easy it actually can be. That is so right. It's exactly almost the opposite of what we've been taught in school. For example, school teaches you not to make mistakes, to be embarrassed about mistakes, to be embarrassed about weaknesses. But most learning comes from making mistakes and reflecting on the mistakes and say, I don't want to do that thing again. Success is achieved by knowing one's weakness to be able to get around those weaknesses in the right way. But school and egos stand in the way of that. And whatever success I've had in my life and and the smartest people I know have had in their lives 
has come more as a result of knowing how to deal with their not knowing than anything they know. And school doesn't teach you that. It teaches the opposite. It teaches following, remember, and then if you follow and you remembered and you did instructions well and you succeeded, you are smart. And it doesn't teach you to even look inside yourself and say, what do you want? Exactly. And then figure out how to go get it. School and that whole perfection thing is a problem. It's a big problem. I heard I, Wayne Gretzky and Sir Ken Robinson speak. Sir Ken Robinson was saying, you know, education is such a problem because it kills creativity. And Wayne Gretzky said that when he used to play hockey, he never listened to his coach. He would take a pen and a piece of paper and he would watch a game and just draw on the paper where the puck was and then look at that. And then the coach would call a play and he just wouldn't listen. He'd just keep going to where he knew that puck was going to go. And he said, my parents told me, go outside and look at those streetlights. You don't come back in the house to those streetlights go on. And so he said, we have to cultivate being messy and thinking out of the box. And what I love about you is that you've gone into the matrix and pulled out the most fundamental things that you are now teaching that you've learned about critical thinking and imagination and understanding the way that we can actually find answers and it's so big. <laughs> it's so awesome. So um, I want to talk about principles for success and principle thinking. And this is, I mean, this is like a huge part of your life's work. But right before we go into it, I want to say something about what you just said, which I think is the linchpin that holds everybody back on my show from doing what they want. All my listeners is they want to get it right. There's so much shame. If I don't get the ROI, if I don't nail it, if I don't land it, how could I make something mediocre? How could I make something messy? It's so ingrained. And I don't know, how do you give people the wings and the freedom to just unleash and allow yourself to make mistakes when you're so wired to feel shame around that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, they intellectually have to get it. And then they have to emotionally experience it because, you know, there are two brains in ours. You know, there's the intellectual, logical brain, and then there's the subliminal, emotional brain. And both have to sort of get comfortable with that. So intellectually, I think it's logical. They should understand that most learning comes from making mistakes. If you, if you don't make a mistake, you're probably doing it right. You know, and then you get an ego kick or something, but you're not going to learn something. So almost everything comes from that. And so to make that acceptable mistake and learn and to have a real curiosity through experimentation and from taking in from others is, is part of the process and reflecting on it like you were describing Gretzky, you know, he found his way. So if you go there, experience it, and learn it, that's, that's one thing. And then to be in an environment that allows it and encourages it, you have to be around the right people who will do that. If you have some boss who wants you to follow instructions and doesn't give you necessarily the ability to find your own way or question, you're probably not going to be in a good environment. And then realize you really don't have much to lose 
what are you going to lose? Are you not going to have food to eat? Are you not going to have a good warm bed to sleep in? Are the people who used to love you not going to love you? In other words, and then know that that's how successful people have become successful. So you play with it, adapt with it, and also also know what are your main weaknesses. Like I call it the one big thing. What is the one big thing, your one big thing, that has stood in the way or has been your real blocker about that? And try to know what that is. And then also know yourself. For example, one could take personality profile tests, know, know themselves. Uh, we could talk about those if, if you want. Yeah, I took your test. It was amazing. Let's talk about principles. Let's talk about your book. And let's talk about what was at the heart of what you wanted people to walk away with from that book. Well, those principles, I didn't set out to write a book. I, over the prior 25 years, what I found is that whenever I would encounter something, particularly a painful experience, I have an expression, pain plus reflection equals progress. And I also wanted to be very clear with everybody that I worked with. What was the principle I was using to make decisions? So every time I would be there, I'd write down a principle. I'd put it out. We'd talk about it and so on. And I accumulated that over those years. And then that was the year that I was stepping out as CEO and I wanted to pass that along. So that was the collection of that. And what I wanted to do in passing those along was um, first let people understand what principled thinking is. It's a different way of thinking so that you have your own principles and you think in that principled way for yourself, not follow. And then you could take the principles that worked well for me and you can look at them. So that's why I put out the book. And um, I was really pleasantly surprised over 3 million uh, books in 34 (laughs) countries and people would, would write me real thank you notes because it made a difference. And, you know, so anyway, that's why I did it. Let's talk about radical truth and radical transparency. Why are those such cornerstones for you? What does it even mean? How do you explain it? Well, reality. To me, truth means reality. How do things literally work? And truth also means trust. And so... If we can say, let's be really totally clear, knowing that I don't know what reality is, you don't know what reality is, but if we have a relationship and I think this, I should be able to put my honest thoughts on the table. You should be able to put your honest thoughts on the table, and we should be able to look at those and find a mechanism to try to find out what's true, not just between us, but maybe we say, okay, who would be a good judge? Like if there's a disagreement, I always sort of have a rule, mutually agree on a person that you think is smart and caring that will help you through your mutual disagreement. But to be able to do that, because there are so many scenarios and so many confusions that exist because people don't you don't know what really the person is really thinking. And so that's dysfunctional and it undermines trust. So that's what I mean by radical truthfulness. And then there are these realities that we wish were not true 
that we have to totally embrace like weaknesses and mistakes. And if you could do that and you really know what's true, that's radical truthfulness, then you can deal with what's true. But if you don't know what's true, you can't effectively deal with it. So that's radical truthfulness. Radical transparency means you could see things for yourself rather than have somebody characterize it. You know, when you listen to a story, two people in an argument and they describe what happens, they have two totally different stories. Sure. If instead anybody can actually listen to what happened. So I found that by recording everybody so everybody could listen to things directly, they're not going to get the spin so that, you know, that's the reality. So if you see reality and you can talk about reality in a truthful way, you build effectiveness and you build trust. It's been great. It's incredible. And it's so refreshing it reminds me that you also, as far as I know, have a, a meditation practice. And the reason I bring it up is because in order to have the willingness to call everything to the table, we need to be integrated. We need to, again, remove the shame of welcoming parts of ourselves to the table. And every time you go back to something, you're not dealing with this barrier of your ego and shame. And it's so incredible to witness and listen to. It just makes everyone feel so relaxed and at ease because this ego thing is not in the way. And that really is what's in the way for everyone. That's why they can't make a mistake. That's why they can't tell the truth. So please let me hear you talk about how you've come to this point and how we can help other people come to this place with this ego. So it, it doesn't rob us of having this kind of relief? Well, I think two things brought me to the place. Meditation is right. And so 1968, 69. So I guess that was 52 or three years ago. I learned how to meditate because the Beatles did it. And anyway, I learned how to uh, meditate. And meditation is fabulous. You know, the two things I'd recommend to people, if I can give them anything, it would be to give them an understanding and an ability to do principled thinking and meditation. And I'll explain meditation. Um, meditation is a process where I do transcendental meditation. There's a repeating of a mantra, which is a word that doesn't have any meaning. And it takes you away from your conscious thoughts into that mantra, then it sort of disappears and you go into your subconscious mind. It's peaceful, but also, you know, you have your conscious logical mind, and then there inside you, there's also this subconscious and unconscious mind. And by bringing it together, it opens the flow between those two. And from your subconscious mind, that's where intuitions come from. That's where imagination comes from. So it gives one an equanimity, a calmness to accept the things that exist. It's helpful that way. But it also gives one that creativity, that imagination. It's like um, if you want to be creative rather than working, I'm going to be creative. It's almost like you go take a hot shower and the ideas come to you and you want to grab them. And so that's what it, it brings. So that played a role. And then my encountering the challenges of life 
led me to, you know, pain plus reflection equals progress, that kind of thing. But also how I wanted to be with people like and how I want them to be with me. Like we'd have to be radically truthful. Like if you can't be radically truthful with me, <laughs> I can't be radically truthful with you. We're going to have a problem. So all of those things sort of led me to this way of being, which then is self-rewarding. You know, if you do it, it works. And whatever works gives you the rewards to do it. It's so good. And I'm amazed at how, how the synchronicity of life, because I meditate and the amount of people who come through this show, including David Lynch and all who meditate and somehow like... I just find it fascinating how people are brought into my life. So for those who don't, I would say it's enjoyable, it's healthy, it's intellectually empowering. It just makes for terrific results. Anybody who's stuck with it past, I'd say, six months um, doesn't stop. In the beginning, people get impatient. You know, they want to run off and do something and then one starts to realize that when you get into that state and you have the ability to engineer things, it gives you so much effectiveness when you're not meditating because you deal with everything. It's incredible. I've learned for myself that whatever it is, I'd rather like sit and listen to the river than push it because just making space to hold what is feels so much better than running from it, pushing it, even if it's something painful to hold, all of a sudden you feel as you go toward it, something bigger than the pain is holding the pain, which is this feeling of centeredness, integration, equanimity. You can be with it. And uh, in that place, it's just incredible. And it's fascinating to me because the crowning jewel of the human is this awareness and we don't use it. We're not taught how to use it. So instead we're like in the blizzard of the thoughts and then hoping that that's going to get us the answer for how to manifest a career, how to manifest a relationship, There's nothing in there, right? And so it's just practicing being aware <laughs> of what you're thinking and then coming back to center again, not something school teaches you to think more, not center out of the thought, right? So that's why I say just, just being in your energy is just such a massive gift. I can see why you've created what you created because it's the resonance. You're so anchored in the present that it has allowed to hold so much energy for so many people. Well, I'm glad you're passing it along to your listeners. I'm glad you are. You're, you're here and doing it. Oh, I love this conversation, but before we keep going, we're just going to thank our sponsors. Are you one of those people who gets their credit card statement and thinks, oh no, I don't even want to open this? Well, we don't blame you. Upstart can lift that weight off your shoulders so that you can finally feel the relief of being free of credit card debt. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan and it's all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. And unlike other lenders, Upstart doesn't just look at your credit score. They also look at your income and employment history so they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And what's amazing is that you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash dreamjob. That's upstart.com slash dreamjob. 
Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash dreamjob. In the newest edition of Wondery's Business Movers, The Rise of Uber, host Lindsey Graham takes you through the origin story of the now infamous ride-sharing app. In just a few short years after Uber's inception, former CEO Travis Kalanick turned the small, scrappy startup into the most popular ride-sharing platform in the world, which also paved the way for other peer-to-peer service apps. Along the way, Uber went to war with local politicians, labor unions, and competitors. They stopped at nothing to make sure they cemented their legacy in the transportation industry. And as it expanded across the globe, Uber faced tremendous backlash and a share of scandals. I love stories like this. It's just so fascinating to hear how this simple idea was born and the resilience it took to make Uber become this huge disruptor. We often think of these companies as an overnight success, but we forget that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And this podcast does a great job of pulling back the curtain to reveal what challenges they were really facing and how they were able to deal with them. So listen to the newest season of Business Movers Rise of Uber on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. You say that our two biggest barriers are ego and our blind spots. So how do we overcome when, when they're keeping us stuck? If it's a blind spot, you don't see it. So how do you deal with that? How do you find out what it is then even? Yeah. So an ego barrier means like, if I don't know, I feel bad about it, I can't take it in, or to be very biased to think that because it's in your head as an opinion that it has a merit or more merit than it is. I think the greatest tragedy of mankind, it's a big statement, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> uh, is individuals who hold in their heads attachments to wrong opinions that they don't resolve. It affects all interactions and it affects the effectiveness. And when I say it's a tragedy, you know, an Aristilian tragedy is that one little thing that could be so easily changed. If you change that thing, everything could be different so much better. If one doesn't have that ego barrier and like, I know best, but can really take it in and make the decisions, then you have the best thinking you have access to. You learn so much more. You make much better decisions than if you're just confined to what's in your head. Okay, so that's practical, that open-mindedness, the ego getting past that, understanding how to be great. To be great, you have to do that. So that's the ego barrier. And then there's the blind spot barrier in that from birth and development are the ways of thinking vary. Somebody can see something others can't see. So there's the big pictures thinker, the detailed thinker. You know, there's people with imagination and there's people with reliability. And we needed all those things. Nature didn't create anything that wasn't needed. So all those different things are needed, but it's like listening to pitch. We can't hear what a dog hears and so on. That's just the realities of those things. And so that's what I mean by a blind spot barrier. We all will not be able to see some of those things. And then to know that and to know that when you can listen with different people who can see those things that you can't see, then you go from 
seeing life in black and white to seeing it in color or two dimensions to three dimensions, you can see those things. So if you can take in all that's available for you, you can be tremendously successful and you can learn a tremendous amount because like if you're confined to just what's in your head and how you see it, you're going to be so inferior than if you could take advantage of the best thinking around you. It's so powerful and it's so true. And it goes back to me to this idea of, I see so many people who are so defensive and they hold on so much to their narrative or whatever they think because they feel so tied and so broken. They can't accept that they might not be right. Like they don't allow themselves the grace to, to see it, that it could be bigger. And they also are trying to protect themselves, right? Like everyone's so afraid. So we're not in a state of allowing. We're in a state of protection constantly. I got to protect myself. I got to hold on to this belief, right? Why do we hold on to fear or narratives that are hurting us we think it's protecting us in some way. When I look at you, I see somebody who's just in a great state of allowing. That's how all of this has come, right? There's, a, there's an opening, right? There's a receivership. There's a gratitude. There's a, there's a beginner's mind. All of that is openness, but it, it means the cost is you're not going to protect yourself by holding on to things. And I, I just see that that's what gets in people's way. Yeah, so I think... If I was to speak to people to try to help them along, the first thing you would say is, supposing you had a process that allowed you to find out what's true, whether you're right or wrong, would you want that process? Right. (laughs) Okay. So now you could know, like push a button or something and it'll correct me. Would you want that process? Okay. Now, usually you could sort of get people to say, okay, I'd want that process. Then you have to give them that process. And the way that you can give them that process, it can be very simple. It can be um, that maybe we say, can we mutually agree on one person or a few people who we can describe the circumstances to, to take it in. And there could be no excuse for not wanting to do that. And so if you give them a process and you make them want it intellectually, you're giving them a path. You have to give them a path, right? And then they have to practice The key word there that you were getting at is uh, acceptance. This is a key thing. Acceptance of whatever our realities are. They are our realities. And when you don't fight your realities and you accept that realities, then you can move on to say, what do I do about those realities to get what I want? And you'll find out. There are many paths to get what you want once you accept those realities. So if the person can learn that open-mindedness, which anyone can learn, and they accept those realities, then they can take in all the advice that they could get from anybody on how to get around those realities, and they don't have to keep it in their, their head. 
it's a practice. The other thing that is true that people don't realize, and I got to see, I get to see the most successful people in the world in all different domains. And I will tell you that the smartest people in the world who have most skills and have the most information, their brains work great and so on, are the most open-minded and the most are dealing with how to deal with what they don't know well. People think it's the opposite. School makes you think it's the opposite. You look at somebody, they tell you, here's how it is and so on. But no, if you're in those conversations and you see it, like they want to be in the conversations because they want to learn and I want to learn. (laughs) And it's that. So there's no reason for the barrier. You can get around it. You can take in the best. And that power can exist if you recognize your blind spots and your uh, ego barriers and you enjoy learning and making better decisions. It's available for everybody. So much of what you say has so much of a bearing on your relationships, clearly. And you talked about the culture that you were so helpful and instrumental in creating in your at Bridgewater. How much of business do you think is relationships and how much do you think it's math or a product or a thing? Well, there are all different kinds of relationships. I worry about the type of relationships which are political, allies and enemies, not open within organizations. That's a relationship, but that's not a good relationship versus the radical truthfulness, radical transparency. What is truth and how do we together get at that? Uh, That's a different kind of relationship. What you're paying your attention to, is it logical And you ask about, it could be math to try to define the facts. It could be legal. It could be history. It could be whatever the profession is, artistic. But you still have to understand how reality works, whatever that may be. Maybe math matters, maybe history matters, maybe artistic matters, maybe skills, architectural skills or whatever it is that is necessary. Skills of that sort matter and perspective of course, matters. But the best way to get at the right answer is always by being radically open-minded and working through a system that's designed to get at the best answer without the politics and all the, even the sensitivities about mistakes and weaknesses. Yep. Speaking about radical transparency, Really knowing yourself is something that you've talked about a few times already. And I took your self-assessment tests over the last couple of days and I was really intrigued. There's so much to it. It's really in depth. Why did you want to create a self-assessment tool? And what are you, what are you hoping people do with that information? Well, I started my company 46 years ago and about 25 years ago. It was just so obvious that people's ways of thinking were very, very different. And then I started to see some of the personality tests, you know, Myers-Briggs, and then there's uh, the Big Five and Team Dimensions and Workplace Inventory. I found all of those tests. I remember giving Myers-Briggs to 150 managers of mine, and, um, and then I got the readings back, and I read them. And I said to myself, 
I never could imagine that people thought like this. Or ways of thinking that I had never imagined that anyone actually thought that way. And I asked them to rate the test, how well it described them. And 85% of them rated it a four or a five on a scale of one to five. It was really them. And it was a breakthrough because we started to understand how the minds work differently and the values were different as it pertains to that. And that changed how everybody interacted with each other because they understood, oh, you're that type, I'm this type, this is how it works and how you work together. Where before it used to drive people crazy because, yeah. um, you know, like the big picture thinker that would speaking to the person who pays attention to the details would say, you keep getting tripped up on that, we'll get over it and so on. And that, that other person would say, you have your head in the cloud. You don't even know where you're going and you're disorganized. And, and so there are these different ways of being where the knowledge that people think differently and then realization that uh, how they think in understanding the relationships between different things, where they are on that continuum of this and that was invaluable. It made us be able to put together teams better. It helped personal development and so on. So over those years, I've used a number of those tests. And then a couple of years ago, I wanted to get them all into one great test and operating our way and the, getting at certain things. And so I brought in uh, three great psychometricians to work with me to develop this test, which we call Principles U. And um, that's a test you took. It takes 40 minutes or so, I th typically, or something around that. It's fun to take. And it describes people. Like everybody says, wow, that describes me in detail in multi-ways. And then we have them give it to other people who then it defines their relationship. Like if you want to give it to somebody you have a relationship with, we have it programmed. So it, it understands you, it understands them, and it tells you the issues in your relationship. That's uh, amazing. And we're going to give it away free, for free. It's going to be available in a couple of months. So anybody can do it so that people can make that self-discovery because it's so valuable. What was your experience? Oh, my God. Well, it's totally me. I took screenshots of my answers because I was amazed, not even because I thought I was going to share it with you. I didn't even know you'd ask me, but I was just kind of amazed at it. I'm 99% creative and 1% analytical. And I'm married to an attorney who is all about the details. And boy, is that hard. My uh, by the way, did you give him the, did you give him the test? No, but now that you just told oh, me. Oh, oh yeah, this will be great because- I'm freaking it'll, out. It'll give him the same profile and then it'll tell you about your relationship. It's amazing. Like I'm 2% attention to detail and 99% conceptual. I'm 99% extroverted. So I'm reading through this and I'm just like, oh my gosh. And, and so of course, I don't know. I think most people are like this. I'm for sure like this. I'm like, yeah, this is why I'm successful. I'm creative. I'm, I'm extroverted. I'm a doer. I'm thinking about my husband. I'm like, he overthinks things. He's this, he's that. I was going to ask you. I kind of am laughing because I think that's a little silly that I think that way. But I'm also laughing because I was going to ask you, 
which one have you seen makes a more successful person? Someone no, who needs- That's the thing that is the thing that's so amazing. It always is dependent at what you're doing and that, and that type of success. And then you'll start to realize that that 90% is missing whatever that 1% little thing is. And that 1% you damn well better get in order to be totally successful because uh, because you need that other piece. And if you and him can understand what the strengths and weaknesses are so that you can cover each other, then that, uh, then you're going to be more successful because because the one way prohibits the other way. You just saved my whole marriage. No, but that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. But, that but, you- but no, but it'll be true. Have him take the principles you test and then put it together and then look at it. Okay. And then understand and accept. It's just a different path that lends itself to a different kind of strength. For example, lawyer, maybe it really is very important that he has precision and it may not be your creativity and, and that kind of thing. Like, okay, he, he needs to make sure he gets that all lined up and right, perhaps, and have that, you know, this is not, you know, abstract painting that he's doing. So you have to understand those things. Then when you start to understand it, you could say, can you take that? I'll take this right? Like all that stuff that you don't like to do, he might like to do. And all the stuff that you might be great at, you know, he may not be his thing. And so when you start to figure that out, hmm. and so we're also making it that um, if every person in a group takes it, who works together, it can define how they work together. That's incredible. This is really cool. I think I've been wrong about this because I've talked to so many successful people on this show and they they often say things like to be successful you need to be have an action taking bias, right? You can't have all the information, you got to go for it and and that has come up a lot and that's in like there's like a Colby assessment, the disc assessment, you know, do you take the action, do you not? So I've sort of walked around a little bit on my high horse thinking like, you know, if you need all the information to make a decision, you're not going to be successful. I'm curious. But the, no, no, but that's true. That, um, but so that is true. Okay. But yes, in other words, like I wrote in uh, my book, Principles, I'm an imperfectionist. And what happens is there is a marginal amount of information that you need. And then beyond that, it's not worth the time. And you exactly. don't, you have to know where it is. And you have to know how to weigh big things against small things. Um, generally speaking. However, it may be in his role for you, and I don't know him, but that he might be able to catch the things that you might miss. Totally. So, So you might be the one who says, okay, here it is. And you'll move quick and whatever. And and then in your moving quick and, and, and all of there, and you say, that's the right thing. It may be really good to have the, okay, but what about this? What about this? Let's pause and reflect on that. Okay. And then if you do that right, you know, like you slow down a little bit and he speeds up a little bit, then you can, you know, get to a better result because also impulsiveness can be very costly. Oh my God. Yeah. When you said that about 20 minutes ago, there's like 
a thing that we all know it's in our blind spot. That's our thing. We got to know I'm like impulsive because I'm such a quick, just like a quick start. This is just unbelievably beneficial. When is this going to be out? You said a couple months from now, people can use it. Yeah. It'll be a couple of months or maybe a little bit before a couple of months, I think. Well, since we're, we're rounding things out here and something else that's happening in a, in a few months is you're, you wrote another book. You're so prolific. <laughs> you just keep creating things and doing things. It's, it's amazing. It really is. The Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. Why are you fascinated by looking at the history of other nations and, and our nation, economics, politics, seeing things differently? What can we learn from this? I'm not an academic. I'm a very practical guy. I'm a global macro investor, have been for over 50 years. But I also understand that things have happened that are happening to us today that haven't happened in our lifetimes before, Mm -hmm. but happened many times in history before. And I've learned this over a period of time. There are three big things that are going on now that will shape us, will shape our futures. Big. The first is financial, zero interest rates or near zero interest rates, the creation of a lot of debt and the printing of money. Last time that happened, 1933, there's a mechanics to it, but it means what is the value of money? Where does it come from? That that issue, that's one. Number two is the gaps in wealth values and politics are the largest since the 1930s, or in some cases back to politics, you have to go back before 1900 to see the gaps being so large, which means that literally, you know, the population wants to kill each other. And that has created civil wars and revolutions. When you have a combination of a financial problem, which we have financial problems, and you have a combination of wealth gaps, values gaps, and political gaps, that's a big deal. And the third is when there's a rise of a great power to challenging an existing great power, the rise of China. We've lived in an American empire since 1945. 1945 was the new world order. At the end of World War II, we built an American world order. The United States now is in relative decline in a number of ways, but more importantly, there's a rising power that creates a competition. And so we have trade wars, technology wars, capital wars, and you could have geopolitical wars. And so when you have those three together, the last time that happened was the 30s. And so we have those things. And then we have this stress stress test of COVID. So I needed to understand, for my practical reasons, for making decisions, where are we headed? Where are we headed financially? Where are we headed politically? Where are we headed socially? Where are we headed in our place in the world? So I made a point studying the rises and declines over the last 500 years. I studied the, the, the rise and decline of the Dutch Empire, the British Empire, the American Empire, went back and and did that. So it was a study that I did for my and Bridgewater's usage. And then I um, decided that it needed to be shared. So I put it 
on as I wrote these, but it's on LinkedIn. So anybody can, as I write chapters, I just put it up on LinkedIn and then it'll be completed and put into a book. But it deals with the most important issues of our time. And all of this has happened before for the same reasons. At this moment, at least, what are you thinking is going to be happening over the next five, 10 years? Well, I think you can see the wealth gap and I think you see the political gap. Oh, my God. You know, there's what I want to happen, which is that there's a bipartisan approach that's also smart decision making to deal with our big challenges. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think there are irreconcilable differences. Yeah. And there are big financial problems, which are being dealt with, with creating a lot of debt and printing of money, which in one way needs to happen. There needs to be some redistribution or, or stimulation like on the, with COVID, the disparities that are existing from education or circumstances are very large. And at the same time, there are costs to that. So I think we're now new president making attempts to make it bipartisan, but realistically, both parties have greater extremism at both parties. And the amount that's moderate that will work together in a skillful way is limited. And so I think there'll be the, over the time frame that you're dealing with, you'll have midterm elections. I think we're in the honeymoon period now. I think there'll be greater polarity of states. You're going to see movement of people from one state to another, while taxes are part of that differences in values that are being reflected in those yep. states policies yep. are contributing to that kind of movement. So I think you're going to see more state. You'll see more tension between these two groups and also states and central government. I worry about the world geopolitical situation. And then you'll have four years later, and then you'll have a new presidential election. I suspect it's going to be maybe even more extreme. So it's uh, dangerously chaotic. It's like everybody has an opinion that they're fighting for. I, you know, I have a principle, which is when the causes that you're fighting for are more important to you than the system for resolving disputes, the system is in jeopardy. And I think that that's where we are. That was one of the most powerful, enlightening, um, important things that's ever been said on the show. Thank you so much for having the, the genuine interest in helping this world and going and doing that work. I can't thank you enough. What did, I, I just we, feel like we, I was in a masterclass for an hour. I hope it's of help to people. It's so helpful. It's so important. Ray, thank you for being such a good person, such a smart person, and such a kind person, and so, so generous. Thank you for all of this. Thank you, Kathy. You're doing what you do for the same reasons, and so I'm glad we could do it together. I love every minute of this. Tell us where we can find you and where we can find the book and the new book and the the new everything, the, the tool that's coming. Where can we go to just be a part of your world more? 
you can go on LinkedIn and you'll see me there, or you can go to uh, principles.com and it's got the whole pile. Thank you. Principles.com. We'll put all the links in the show notes. This is going to be fantastic. And I would just love it if somehow personally our paths cross again, because you're one in a zillion. I look forward to it too. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Such a fascinating conversation. Here are the takeaways. Number one, surround yourself with meaningful work and meaningful relationships. Seek radical truthfulness and radical transparency. Number two, learning comes from making mistakes and reflecting on them. Number three, success isn't a result of knowing what you know. It's a result of knowing how to deal with your not knowing. Number four, pain plus reflection equals progress. Number five, embrace the realities you can deal with them, even if you wish they weren't true. There's many paths to get what you want when you accept those realities. Number six, take advantage of the best thinking around you. If you can take in all that's available to you, you'll learn a tremendous amount. And number seven, be open-minded and willing to deal with what you don't know. Okay, now I want to celebrate some of the alumni for me to do this. So Tasha said, I had a live stream on Mixcloud with my ladies showcasing six DJs over three hours, and it was a huge success. Over 300 viewers logged in, which was fantastic for our first time. Tasha, you are such a superstar. I'm sure that those 300 souls had an awesome time, and it just sounds like you're creating such a unique experience. I love how you're giving other DJs a platform to shine. You can all get in on the fun by joining Tasha's community at sonicadventureladies.com. Okay, the next win is from Tiffany. She said, I have completed two seasons of my podcast, Hard Beautiful Journey, where I've interviewed amazing guests, including four from Made to Do This. This has led to the creation of my own podcast course called Use Your Voice, Ignite Your Soul, Launch Your Purposeful Podcast in Seven Weeks. It's also led me to discover my desire to be a speaker, and I gave my first talk at a speaker showcase. I'm getting my soul coaching certification through Brianna Vincent, and I'm working on my first documentary, Lots on the Go. Oh my gosh, Tiffany, this is so cool. I love that you're connected with the most amazing souls from our made to do this and that you're supporting one another. Congrats on everything you're doing. I know you have so much more magic coming your way. If you want to listen to Tiffany's podcast, it's called Hard Beautiful Journey. And you can also check out her Instagram at Miss Tiffon. That's M-S-T-I-F-F-V-A-U-G-H-A-N. All right, now we're going to announce another giveaway winner. We've been doing these giveaways on Mondays and Thursdays. So if you want a chance to win some cute swag, we've got some hoodies, we've got some mugs. All you have to do is leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or go live on your Instagram and talk about the show and tag me at kathy.heller and then we'll enter you. So today's winner is Tori B. And here's what Tori said. I needed this podcast so much. Thank you for such an amazing place to get inspiration every single day. This is my first listen every day when I get in my car to head to work. The interview with Harry Connick Jr. was over the top good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, Tori, thank you for your words and thank you to all of you for listening. I know that you have so many things you could be doing. And just so you know, there's just a few days left. If you want to spend Sunday with me, we're going to be doing this whole virtual retreat. It's going to be so good, so beautiful breath work and meditation and time to process and reflect and journal, come be with us for the Welcome Soul Retreat. It's happening on Sunday from 12 to 6. You can grab your spot at welcomesoul.com. We have so many more amazing episodes coming up. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because I don't want you to miss out and because it is totally free to subscribe. Before I go, I'm curious if you liked this episode and if you can think of one person, one person who would be inspired by this. 
So if you can, send them a text, send them an email, just copy and paste the link and shoot them a note and say, hey, I think that this podcast is going to inspire you. And if you liked it, you can post about the show on your Instagram stories and tag me at kathy.heller and I'll repost as many as I can and tag Ray. He's at Ray Dalio because I just know that he'd love to see what you learned from the conversation. I love you guys so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine. And since we do daily episodes now, I'll talk to you tomorrow. If dreams are made of paper, let's make paper mache. We'll build a world together with our hands. And if hope is made of helium, we'll be like balloons and float away. Wouldn't that be grand? Nothing lasts forever, so we're all a little scared. Giving up that easy, no, we wouldn't dare. Hey, hey, Mr. Sun, don't you set tonight? Tonight, cause we still got a million plans for the day.